Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The music world went a little weird on February 13th, 2011. And I remember it very, very well because I was in a hotel room in Vancouver with nothing to do but watch TV. I think I was coming back from a speaking thing in Victoria. My flight home had been canceled, so I had nothing to do but wait around. So I ordered up a club sandwich from room service and lay on the bed watching the 53rd annual Grammy Awards. All the usual suspects were there. We had Lady Gaga. Her album, The Fame Monster, had been, uh, well, a monster. Six nominations, including Best Album. Katy Perry, seven nominations for her Teenage Dream album. Eminem was back. Rihanna had a bunch of nominations. There was buzz about Justin Bieber and Jay-Z and Alicia Keys and Bruno Mars and Lady Antebellum. And finally, after more than three hours of awards and speeches and performances, it was time to present Album of the Year. And the presenter was Barbara Streisand, who earlier in the evening was feted with the Music Cares Person of the Year honor, which was a really big deal. So she steps on stage with the envelope, and the crowd's all buzzing. Oh, it's going to be Katy Perry. No, 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 no way. They're going to give it to Eminem. Are you crazy? Lady Gaga has this all sewn up. So buzz, 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 buzz. And Babs opens the envelope, and... um. Well, just just listen to how she says this. And the Grammy goes to the suburbs. Arcade Fire. Didn't she sound confused? Let's let's listen again and note the long pause as she stares at the printing on the card, as if she really doesn't know what to do. The suburbs. Arcade Fire. Twitter exploded. I mean, it just melted down with indignation, outrage, and hate. The suburbs? By who? I mean, what's an arcade fire? Never heard of them. You people are crazy. How how come I don't know who they are? No one knows who they are. Who the hell is arcade fire? It was actually quite epic. And for those who still don't get it, hang on. We can fix things for you. Or at least try to. This is the Ongoing History of New Music. The podcast edition with Alan Cross. OMG, really I'm pissed. What's an arcade fire? And why are people excited for it? Who the hell is arcade fire? Why do they win a Grammy? Arcade fire is That's Jonathan Mann with Who the Hell is Arcade Fire? a song he wrote after the band's surprise win of Album of the Year at the 2011 Grammys. And if you want more of that, you know, the confusion and the cussing about that win, there's actually a Tumblr account called Who is Arcade Fire that has archived some of the most awesome tweets that were sent out that night. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and if you haven't already guessed by now, we are going to do a profile of, um, well, you know, There aren't many bands who have achieved the critical and commercial success that we've seen with Arcade Fire. We've got Junos and Grammys and Brits, a Polaris Music Prize. 
They're beloved by the cool kids. They're beloved by the critics. And they're one of the few rock bands to emerge from the first decade of the 21st century to be true arena-sized attractions. And all their shows are sellouts. Fans include Bono and Peter Gabriel and David Bowie. For an independent act that won't play the major label game, they've certainly sold a sizable number of records, complete with a couple of number one debuts in Canada, the United States, and the UK. Heck, even NBC gave them a half-hour TV special that aired following an appearance on Saturday Night Live. They didn't even do that for U2. And, oh, Bono was in this special. And this is a band that really defies description. They play guitars, drums, keyboards, accordion, xylophone, organ, brass instruments, double bass, hurdy-gurdy, and virtually anything else they can get their hands on. What is this band? And how did the Arcade Fire get to this point? It's not like the band is willing to talk about themselves. You want to engage them on something about Haiti or another one of their humanitarian pursuits? Fine, but to get some real history about them, we kind of have to piece together what we can. And here we go. Now, I guess we should start with singer Wynne Butler, who, by the way, is not Canadian, at least not by birth. He was born in a place called Truckee, California. Seriously, Truckee. It is hell and gone in the northeast corner of the state on the border with Nevada. He didn't stay there that long. The family soon moved to the Woodlands, one of those gated master plan communities, which is about a half hour north of Houston. A couple of things about Wynne. First of all, his real name is Edwin. And second, he was raised Mormon. And third, he comes from a family of musicians. A guy named Elvino Ray was one of his grandfathers. He was a jazz steel guitarist and band leader who worked as a musician for more than 70 years. Now, if he had been a little bit more of an entrepreneur, and if he had known a little bit more about patents, we might be talking about him as the inventor of the electric guitar amplifier. He wasn't, he didn't, so we're not. He did, however, as an employee of the Gibson Guitar Corporation, contribute greatly to the invention of what would become known as the modern electric guitar pickup. If you go to the Jimi Hendrix Museum in Seattle, you'll see a prototype on display. And if you go to St. Louis to the Steel Guitar Hall of Fame, yes, there is a Steel Guitar Hall of Fame, Elvino is described as the father of the pedal steel guitar. And here's something else. You know those talk boxes used by people like Peter Frampton with their guitars? It's a ridiculous device, but Elvino Ray helped invent that back in the 1930s. A grandmother, Elvino's wife, was a member of the King Sisters, a big band singing group. If you're old enough, you might remember a variety show on ABC called The King Family Show. That was 1965, and Wynne's mom, Liza, was also on that show. All right, more deep background. William Butner, Wynne's younger brother by two years, had the same upbringing. Like I said, in 1984, the family moved to a bland, planned community near Houston, the Woodlands, right? We'll get back to that place a little later. Both Butler boys went to prep school in Boston, and this is where they were exposed to music from Joy Division, New Order, James, The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, and The Smiths. 
From there, William went to Northwestern University in Chicago, where he majored in poetry and Slavic studies. Meanwhile, Wynne moved to Montreal because he wanted to study religion, first at Concordia, then at McGill. And that's where he met Regine Chassange. She was born in Montreal to parents from Haiti. They had moved to Quebec in 1962 to escape the craziness that was the dictatorship of Papa Doc Duvalier. It was a really good thing, too, because some relatives were killed in 1964 in something called the Jeremy Vespers Massacre. Regine and Wynne met in 2001, while Regine was studying jazz voice at McGill. And Wynne was really impressed the way she could play just about any instrument. Keyboards, organ, accordion, drums, xylophone. Wynne was in a band at the time, and he asked her to join up, and she did. They got married in 2003. That band was an early version of Arcade Fire. Wynne had formed it with Joshua Dew, a fellow student from the school in Boston. Wynne liked Boston, but Dew thought that Canada offered more opportunities for a band like theirs. You know, a greater variety of music, more culture, more bohemian, more open to new ideas, lots of arts festivals and art galleries that were welcoming to avant-garde musical performances, there were plenty of grants for musicians, and there were plenty of cheap places to live. I mean, what's not the love of Montreal? And what about a name? Well, that's where the band is still rather evasive. Here's the most common quote from Wynne. A friend of mine told me a story of this fire at a local arcade in the Canadian Maritimes. I don't know whether the story was true or not. I never looked into it, but the phrase stuck in my mind. There were a lot of lineup changes, and nothing really seemed to gel until the summer of 2002, when whoever was in the band went to the Butler family farm in Maine to record a debut EP. But things were really weird within the group, and when Arcade Fire offered a debut performance of that EP, there was an onstage implosion, and it looked like the group had broken up before everybody's eyes. And it actually had. The band was over. But then, baby brother William Butler was drafted along with Tim Kingsbury of Guelph, Ontario, and this new lineup, which also included a multi-instrumentalist grunge fan and vegetarian cook from Ottawa named Richard Reed Perry, set about promoting this new EP. At the time, and this is 2003, the EP was known amongst fans as Us Kids Know. Let's have a listen to the original version of a song that would later show up on the Neon Bible album in 2007. The original recording of No Cars Go from Arcade Fire's 2003 debut EP. That release attracted the attention of Merge Records, which was an indie label based out of Durham, North Carolina. They liked what the band was doing, and they asked for a full album. Here's where things begin to get really interesting. Hang tight. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. We are piecing together the history of Arcade Fire, and we're up to the point where Merge Records, an indie label based out of Durham, North Carolina, and run by members of another indie band called Superchunk, asked for Arcade Fire to give them a full album. They whipped something together in about a week, in the summer of 2003, in a studio called Hotel to Tango, which was in the attic of a building in Montreal. They had it finished by early 2004. And right from its release on September 14th, 2004, the critics and cool kids went nuts over it. The band called it Funeral because so many of the band's relatives died during its making. All of old age, too. Grandfathers, grandmothers, aunts. 
Of the 10 tracks on the album, five were released as singles, and this was one of them. Neighborhood number three, Power Out, a single from the Funeral album and the song that got the band its first notices in the UK, thanks to a distribution deal with Rough Trade Records. The way Funeral was embraced was, was kind of silly, really. Club shows quickly turned into festival appearances from Canada to California to the Netherlands to Japan. They ended up on the cover of Time magazine. They became friends with David Bowie, who turned out to be a big admirer. They even recorded a live version of the song Wake Up Together. Oh, and speaking of Wake Up, that was the last song U2 used before they hit the stage for every show on their Vertigo tour. In fact, I think it's worth listening to right now. Here's the version of Wake Up featuring David Bowie. This was recorded at the Fashion Rocks event in New York in September of 2005. Arcade Fire with their new friend, David Bowie, a big fan right to the end. And like I said, there was that U2 tour where that was the last song played over the PA before the group hit the stage. It was Wake Up. And if you were at any of those shows, you'll know that the sound guy pushed the volume way up for that song. It was, in effect, entrance music for U2. And there were Grammy Award nominations. I counted three. Brit Award nominations. Again, I think there were three. And they won a Juno for Songwriters of the Year. And it all happened very, very fast. It was by far the most significant debut album of the decade. Flash in the pan, a lot of people said. Yeah, no. When Arcade Fire finally had a chance to rest after everything blew up so big with the Funeral album in 2003, 2004, and 2005, there were those who said it was a fluke. An indie band did all that? Well, they won't be able to do that again, especially since they don't seem to want to play the game when it comes to media and interviews. Well, yeah, they did. And the way they kept it going was by buying a church. We will pick it up there in a second. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. With the money they earned from sales of the funeral album and the growing performance fees they could demand, Arcade Fire decided to invest in their future by buying some real estate. They found this old place in Farnham, Quebec, about 70 kilometers southeast of Montreal, and they turned it into a new headquarters. It was an old church, but actually it hadn't been a church in a while. It was a cafe known as Petite Eglise. And before that, it was a Masonic temple. Still, it was pretty cool to have an old church. And remember that Wynn Butler was a religious studies major. Three bedrooms, two baths, a large common room, and a laundry room. The basement was renovated and outfitted with a recording studio. The roof was a bit dodgy and the yard was very overgrown, but the vibe seemed to work. Having their own rehearsal space and recording studio allowed the band to experiment as long as they wanted without piling up huge bills. So it turned out to be a really smart move. Two new members joined up drummer Jeremy Guerra, and violinist Sarah Neufeld. 
Most of the work was done at the old church, although some sessions were held in New York and other places. We're told that when Butler felt a little weirded out after having lived in Canada for a few years, he began to look at the U.S. from an outsider's perspective, something that he says resulted in the record having themes of dissonance and the occasional feeling of dread. They called this album Neon Bible. There's that church thing again. And when it came out on March 7th, 2007, expectations were pretty high. And they were met. Number one in Canada, number one in Ireland, number two in the U.S. and the U.K., number seven in Australia, number nine in France. Reviews were pretty much unanimously ecstatic. Only Rolling Stone was left feeling a little cold, but Merge was happy. Funeral had been the album's best-selling album ever, and Neon Bible did even better. Who's gonna throw the very first stone? Arcade Fire from the Neon Bible album. And yeah, Intervention was recorded in that old church. When the song was released on iTunes just after Christmas 2006, all proceeds went to helping the people of Haiti. The following day, the band opened a phone line, 1-866-NEON-BIBLE. Going to extension 7777 gave the caller access to this song, which was designated as the first official single. The album was a finalist for the 2007 Polaris Music Prize. It got a nomination for Best Alternative Album at the Grammys, but it lost to Icky Thump from the White Stripes. But it also won a Juno in that same category. All right, so that's two albums in a row where this indie band from Canada hit it out of the park on the global stage. No way could they do it a third time. Uh-uh. It's just impossible. Well, they could. In fact, the third Arcade Fire album beat out those first two records combined back in a moment more of the ongoing history of new music the podcast edition with alan cross there's so much to the arcade fire story that we have to divide it in two we're through the first ep and the first couple of albums and as big as those albums were they were just the start so we'll pick things up with everything that went into the suburbs on part two Meanwhile, feel free to shoot me an email at any point. Questions, comments, suggestions, critiques. I look at everything that comes in, and I answer everything myself. The address is alan at alancross.ca. You can also find out more about the show with my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated every day with all kinds of cool and unusual music stuff. You should subscribe to the Ongoing History YouTube channel. We have a new animated feature that comes up pretty much every week. Just search for Ongoing History on YouTube and you will find it. Plus, I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. If you are too, we should connect. Part two of the Arcade Fire story next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.